It's good to see you. We are continuing in our sermon series on rest. We've called it Rest in Peace. It's funny how that phrase is almost always used for death. Um, we're trying to kind of recapture the idea. And uh, we could do that if you'll turn. Looking for the right page. Turn to Exodus uh, chapter 23 which is page 56. We'll get there eventually. So you have time. So far in our sermon series, we've uh, been dealing, we've dealt with uh, God's installment of daily rest for us, that being sleep. And then we talked about uh, God's weekly ordinance of rest for us, which is the Sabbath. Today we're going to go, we're going to expand our view wider now. Instead of daily or weekly, we're going to expand more to kind of in and out of season um, as the years roll on and throughout the year, how does God uh, kind of uh, help us or what has God instituted or what does the words have for us as far as finding rest throughout the year. And in, in more specifically, um, we're going to be dealing with um, some less tangible, although I hope practical, but less tangible aspects of rest. How it relates to work. It's very, it's very hard when talking about rest to get very far away from work um, because they're kind of woven together. But what I'd like you to do as we start is I want to do a little experiment. I want you to imagine what it was like in the garden. And we're going to get way outside the lines here, so just walk with me. Um, imagine what it, was, it would have been like to work inside of the garden before the fall. Or, if you, if you have a hard time thinking back to before the fall, we can think forward to imagine what it, would be, what it will be like to work on the new earth. Um, so, I, let's do that for a little while. Um, first of all, we need to recognize that the man and the woman were made to work. Uh, in Genesis it says, God, he made them. And he placed them in the garden and he said, hey, this is your garden to tend and to work and to kind of be stewards over and your, your dominion is over the animals. And, and so the idea of work in the garden is not something that, that is a foreign idea. Work's not bad. It's part of the creative order. It's, it's what mankind was made. To, it's one of the things we were made to do. So we shouldn't think of a day in the life of the garden as just sunning yourself and eating mangoes, as nice as that might be, it's not, I mean, they're going to figure out a way to sin if that's all they had, right? They also had some work. But it is, it, there is no mention of the Sabbath in the garden. It's kind of interesting. So they're supposed to work, but there's no description of the Sabbath. Some might say, well, it's there, it just wasn't talked about. I actually don't think it was present. I don't think there was any other any rule except for don't eat of that tree. And so I, I, I want you to imagine, again, we're outside the lines. We're, we're in a place that is beyond commentary, but I think it's useful, and, and we'll do something with it, I hope. There's a place where they're made to work, but there's, there's not a need to set aside a time to escape that work. It's this, just the state in which they are is one where rest is woven into their labor. They're kind of working and resting um, together. 
And you might think of it, it's because it's, they have not yet fallen, right? There's this third piece that kind of comes along with the creative story, that part of the curse of sinning and falling from God was that for the man, God would greatly increase his toil amidst his labor. And for the woman, that God would greatly increase her toil amidst her labor. Essentially, kind of the signature or defining elements of work, of, of kind of, so the man, the, in the kind of general creative order, he, he was going to work and be the provider in, the, in a provisional sort of way, and that was frustrated. And for the woman, kind of her great gift to the combination is the gift of new children, and that's been frustrated. And the whole image is that there is this sense of toil that's now brought into our creative experience. But that's not there in the garden. That's something that we experience, but it's not something that Adam and Eve experienced. I, I want you to just try to imagine what that would feel like. Imagine you're Adam or a pre-fallen Fred, just generic. And you have a hoe in your hand, and you put the hoe in the earth, and you pull back. And in my mind, I, it just works. You ever try to really put a hoe in the ground? And it's like, ding, ding. And then you're like, ah, and you wait for it to rain. But for, for Adam and Eve, they, they put the hoe in the ground and pulled back. It would be this rich, I'm just imagining, just rich black dirt, you know. And, and just everything that they put their hands to, experiencing that kind of success that we'd never experience when you walk outside to fix something or till something, but they're experiencing it. They're, you know, it's the black dirt is perfect, and, and it's the kind where they, you know, you see the farmer bend down, and he picks it up, and he runs it through his hands because it's so good. And if they plant a tree or whatever, it grows just right. And, and it's God-blessed success amidst the work. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine when things just go continually well in your labor. But they labor hard, and then they stop, and they enjoy their labor. And imagine kind of the opportunity to step back. And, you know, when a person does a big project, you'll see a guy, and he puts an addition on his house. Or they, you paint a house, and you step back, and you do the... Where you kind of admire your work. That that was just kind of an ever-present idea in the garden. Of you do work, and then you kind of, with great satisfaction, admire the work of your hands. Because things are not frustrated. And there's a few things that are not present in the garden that make work very difficult for us. One is, there's no concern about survival in the garden. He's not working to survive. You know, he's... I I keep saying tilling the earth, but he could be doing whatever. He could be building a fence. He could be doing a thing. It doesn't matter what it is. He's doing that thing... And, and he's getting hungry. Imagine he's planting something and he's getting hungry. This is how he would eat. He would reach over and grab a pear off the tree. It's the whole place. There's fruit all over the place. You know, and if he wants to take a break, he takes a break. He's the, the Lord, the, he's Lord of the dominion. So you work hard and then it's like, ah, I think I'll go dive in the crystal clear pool. And you dive in the crystal clear pool and you come out and you, you break a watermelon over your knee and you dip your face in it and you, you stop at noon and you, you just do whatever you want. You go on a walk and, and then you come back to it. 
It's, there's this, you're not working to survive. There's no clock ticking. There's no famine coming. There's no flood coming. There's no drought. There's no horde of locusts. It's you and an agreeable earth. And the fruits around you, and you're shaping your dominion. That's what pre-fallen labor was, is we were shaping our dominion. We weren't struggling to survive. Completely content. That's what I imagine it being kind of before the fall. And I imagine this great sense of satisfaction that kind of comes out of it. And, and the best thing I can connect it to now, which is a healthy version of retirement. When I see, and many of you have modeled healthy, godly retirement for me, and I know the grass is greener because I'm not there, so maybe it's not this good. Don't tell me. But it looks this good to me. When I look, when I look to the side, to, to, to a healthy retirement, what I see is not someone who's doing nothing, but someone who's no longer toiling to survive, and so they are very active doing things they want to do. That is beautiful. I mean, I think that there is something there that, that kind of harkens back to the pre-fallen moment of being in a place where your labor is at its best. Okay, I'm not saying this is what you are doing, but at its best, your labor is simply spirit-induced to go do this. You wake up and you do this. And you stop doing it when you get tired of doing it because it's not putting food on your table. That's, I think, a healthy version of retirement is kind of this best example of something that's not being haunted by the need to survive. And I think this satisfaction is closely connected to a spirit of rest. I think rest is woven in with work and one of the ways that we can find rest in life is by seeking this kind of satisfaction day in and day out in the ways we work. So this is, and this is not how it is for us. I want to talk about how it is for us a little bit. For many of us, uh, we live on either, at least one of these two places and very often both of these places at the same time. There are some people here who right now are working and laboring and toiling to make ends meet. We'd say they're working to survive. Obviously, probably survival is not an issue, but making ends meet, not losing the house, making the car payment. Okay, that they're not asking when are they going to take their next big vacation. They're just trying to make ends meet. And in this place, there's very little rest when this is your situation because you're, you're continually nervous and you're dealing with constant anxiety about the next bill or the next check or the order in which they come. That's the first place that very little rest is found because we're not in the garden. We're laboring uh, kind of on this, against this wall of just providing enough to make ends meet. And then there is on this other side, this, and so there's no satisfaction there. And then on this other side, there's this great place of dissatisfaction, not because we're working to make ends meet, but because we are not satisfied with our parameters. So over here, it's I cannot, I'm barely making ends meet. Over here, it's I have an aspiration to be something or to have a thing that I am not. This desire for promotion or advancement or this certain kind of way that ambition in your life is working itself out makes you continually dissatisfied with what you have and therefore you work harder and harder 
and you rest less and less, even though you're gaining more and more. And invariably, these two places can become the very same because the people who kind of get on this escalator up, oftentimes, with increased income comes increased expectation of expense. So you can be on the high road all the way up, barely making ends meet the entire time because you're redefining need. You know, over here, college for your kids? (laughs) There's loans. And plumbers get paid very well. That's, there's an entire world that that's their category, is if you really want to go to school, get a loan. But I can show you a way to make money with a high school degree. Right? Just be a hard worker. You get over here, now there's expectations. Now the expectation is that you will prepare your children to get a good college degree, which means that you need to be willing to put them in the right private school and that you need to be willing to pay for their college. And all of a sudden, you're making hundreds of thousands of more dollars, but you're spending hundreds of thousands of more dollars to meet the expectation. And so do you see how this dissatisfaction works itself in and creates very little room for rest? We're going to kind of talk about this a little bit, how how either the struggle to survive or the struggle to advance can sometimes be a tremendous threat to the satisfaction in God which brings rest. And we're going to start that. Uh, we're going to look at seasons this morning. And we'll be in Exodus 23, at least for part of the time. There's two ideas. Now, these are... I. I really struggle with this message because these are ideas that, to which I don't have great answers. I'm going to kind of plop the idea on you, and I think it will likely feel somewhat troublesome and problematic, like, well, that's not, doing, that's not giving me my answer fix. And, and I don't know what to say about that. You need to like, take some of it home and allow it to marinate. I, it, I, I can't answer it because I don't have the answer, and it find, I find it equally frustrating, though it's like a good pain. I keep reading about it um, because it tells me something about me is not quite right. So that's how it may feel for you. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just telling you it may feel that way. The first way that we begin to try to find like um, satisfaction in what the Lord has given us is this way. We recognize different seasons of the year or your life. That in, in your year or your cycle whatever it is, that things come in season and things go in season and you can't always be getting more and you're not always going to be spinning out, but things are going to just kind of come in season. In, in, in Ecclesiastes, right, in every, there's a time and a season for everything and then there's the song that they wrote, you know, turn, 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 that, that they wrote that song It's the idea of things coming around. In other words, you can't always be sowing seeds. Nor can you always be harvesting. If you think the Hebrew culture was overwhelmingly agricultural culture. And there's a sense in which you cannot continually sow seeds. Time moves and pretty soon it's inappropriate to put a seed in the ground. It won't do anything. It's a waste of seeds. Likewise, once you harvest, you can't go back to the field and through brute force harvest again. Nothing's coming. 
there's a time in the year to sow, and there's a time in the year to harvest, and the harvesting has its limit. At some point, no matter how much you may want to work, no matter what your spirit of toil is, you have to stop. There's nothing left. In fact, in the, in the Word of God, it says, hey, by the way, don't over-harvest your field. It says, leave the frayed edges and the corners for the poor. So it's even trying to curb that, that need of getting, squeezing every last ounce out of the earth of saying, relax. When is enough enough? But there's this spirit of you cannot continually harvest. Now, now our, our culture kind of plays with this. Right? In our world, we feel like, well, actually you can. 12 months out of the year, 365 days a year, harvest. And I'm not... I'm not sure, maybe that's true, but I'm not sure it does much for our spirit of rest. There is something that's peaceful. God weaves rest in when the seasons transition. When you have to stop harvesting, you have to stop. Or at least transition. Here's what the word says. There's, I want us to look at some festivals. It's in uh, Exodus 23. Look at verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, not 13. I'm in the wrong book. Exodus 23, and I think it's 14. And I'm going to read 14 to 17. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. 16. Celebrate the feast of harvest with your first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the, your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord. Now, there's a lot of other festivals and feasts and days that are tied into the year, but there's three that are mentioned in Exodus which require you to appear before the Lord, uh, not empty-handed, and all three of these, and especially here in Exodus, are linked to harvest seasons. The Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, comes right after or right around the barley harvest. It's the first harvest in the spring, late March, early April. That is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then, if you just think of it from the normal harvest cycle here, around Memorial Day, that, that cycle where all the hay bales show up in the yards, right? That, that is the Feast of the First Fruits is in that period. And then there's the final ingathering harvest, which is down near Oktoberfest, that area, September, October period, where the, the kind of the last things are being brought into the field. At each one of those places, the Lord says, when you're done... Stop and celebrate. Harvest, celebrate. Come, relax, be to the city, celebrate what God has given you. He's not saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, every single year you're going to have so much that you're going to want to celebrate. There may be years where there's not much to harvest, but the reality is you cannot go back to your field a second time and reharvest. Harvest, celebrate. Whatever God gave you, Go to the Lord and say, this is what you gave me. That's what God's requirement is, is that we work hard, and then we go to the Lord and say, this is what you gave me. And celebrate that. All through the year, these, these, 
these major, major feasts, right? Passover is Feast of Unleavened Bread in March. And then you have Pentecost at the next one. And then you have Day of Atonement at the last one. So these high holy days of the Hebrew calendar are anchored at harvest times. You harvest and then you celebrate for the Lord. And at these celebrations, there's high holy moments where they actually add in extra Sabbaths. In fact, the year culminates at the Feast of the Inn Gathering. In that month, in that month, there are three festivals and four extra Sabbaths. In that one month. Four extra days where you can't even work. You shall do no regular work on this day. Day of Atonement. You know, that's where the Hebrew New Year is. That's where the year of Jubilee commences. All of that's happening right there in that last month. There's, what God's doing is saying, once you've done your work, come before me and commemorate what I have given you before me in celebration. And I think that, that rhythm is a step closer to finding satisfaction in God. I'm not saying that he's always going to give you what you want. He likely won't for your own good. What I'm saying is, is when you get what you get, have we established a rhythm to turn to the Lord and say, this is what you've given me, and I'm thankful. And when we can't do that, we typically cannot weave rest into our lives. Typically, we go right back to the field to get more instead of coming before the Lord. Now, few of us farm today. I live on a, I'm going to live on a farm, and I don't even farm. Um, but for many of us, and our lives do not look very seasonal. But what I, want, I thought is, if you take some time, you might actually be able to find some, some version of season in your life that you can identify. First of all, school shapes us. If you're a teacher or a student or if you have kids the academic school year actually creates a certain kind of season that is, that is very permissive for rest. There are great moments for the family. I'm saying even if you have kids, there's great moments where the report card comes, and it's an opportunity, the way the season, it starts in September, and it ends, well, it pretty much ends by Thanksgiving, right? Not much happens between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But that Thanksgiving-Christmas time is a time, it's a seasonal time for the family's rhythm to kind of step back and say to the Lord, this is what I got, thank you. And then it starts back up again, another harvest season, if you want to call it, where you harvest your grades. And you get all the way, and you get around spring break, and then you stop working, and you hope that whatever you harvested kind of holds you over to graduation. Right? But you kind of, in the meantime, but you get to the end of the school year, and it's, this is what I have harvested. I can't go back and do it again it's done. And, and there's kind of, there's a nice rhythm on that. I grew up, my mom was a school teacher. There was a great sense of accomplishment when the report cards were in. There was celebration in the home. Loud celebration in the home when the last report card was written. Because there's these opportunities for closure. And I, I'm suggesting that we take these moments and bring them before the Lord. We say, this is what God has done for us. We don't have enough of these times in our lives where we say, this is what God has done. And when we stop doing that, we forget that God has done them. And then we do not rest. But God has given us these times to return to him and say, this is what you've given me. I'm thankful. Maybe your occupation is seasonal, like you yard work or um, landscaping, construction, 
it's, there's a season where you make hay while the sun shines. And then there's a time where you're allowed to go before the Lord and say thank you. Maybe tax season is your season. Right? It doesn't have to be all manual labor. Maybe there is this place where you go, when I get over this hump, well, when you go over this hump, take a break before the Lord. Stop and say, this, I've made it through another year, and turn it back towards him and say, this is what I've done. Whether it's your end of quarter or your end of year, I'm simply saying that if you are going from major event to major event to major event to major event, you are either struggling to survive, which is pretty rare here, or you have adopted a spirit of advancement, which finds no satisfaction in what God's given you. Return it back to the Lord. Incidentally, from a gospel perspective, if you think of, of God harvesting the earth, harvesting his righteous from the earth, Christ dies at the first harvest celebration, this Feast of Unleavened, right? It's Passover that Christ gives his life. The Spirit enters at Pentecost where there's a great harvest. And we, the church, are awaiting the ingathering. We're between the Pentecost of God and the great ingathering Feast of Christ. That's where we sit, kind of anticipating his work. That's, the church is kind of in that time of being harvested and ripening. Okay, recognize the seasons of your year. That's, that's about as concrete as I can get with that one. Let's look at another one. Would you turn to Leviticus chapter 25, which is page 88? And I recognize we're free from the law, and I recognize we're free from these things, but it doesn't mean they're not useful. Every word of the scriptures God breathed and is useful to instruct us. So there's something at work here. This second one that I want to offer um, has to do with, with this spirit of advancement or of constantly wanting something that's not quite yours. I want to say assign limits to your aspirations. And I want, I want this year of Jubilee to kind of, kind of inform this. Look at chapter 25. I want to read 8 to 13. So every 50 years, um, the Hebrew culture would observe a great stop and reset. And it was called the year of Jubilee. And uh, let me just read 8 to 13. And then I'll skip a little bit and, and read some more. Count off seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. Let me stop there real quick. In addition to the feasts and festivals, you want to talk about a rhythm. Every seventh year, God turned to the people and said, don't farm this year. Leave your farm. No, that's your entire job. And he says, stop farming. Every seventh year, sit, look out your window, and watch it grow. He says, and whatever barley grows, you can eat, but don't go out and sow, and don't go out and harvest. Don't tend to it every seven years. And so here he's saying, count off seven of those. Seven, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42, 49. Count off seven of them. 49, and then he says, and then the next year, the 50th year, is the year of Jubilee, which is another Sabbath year. So in fact, on the 49th year you do not harvest, and on the 50th year you will not harvest. You're going to go two entire years without sowing and reaping. Imagine the you do that, right? It takes faith. 
God's cultivating faith. Rest requires faith. Let me pick back up again. Verse 9. Then have the trumpets sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. Let's skip for a second. Skip to verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently. Because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. And then he describes this. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the years since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he has sold will remain in possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in Jubilee, and he can go back to his property. Do you see that? It, the territorial boundaries of the Hebrew people remain constant. That's what's being expressed here. That if you, were, if you had it in you, if you were a great farmer and a great businessman, and you had it in you to have a great and vast field of corn, and you had a big John Deere combine that could harvest thousands of acres overnight, and you could run all the small farmers out of business... If you could do that, the Lord would say, well, that's fine, but every fi- if you would buy them, and at every 50th year, they're, they're going right back to the people that originally owned them. That the, the Hebrew people were given land by God in the book of Joshua. They were assigned land, and they went to the land, and that land will remain the same. It will remain assigned to the clans and the families to whom it was originally given. There was this idea of preservation, not ambition, not advancement among the Hebrew people, but a preservation of their culture, which said, enough is enough. That even when land was bought or exchanged, it was done so on a temporary basis, so as to ultimately preserve the well-being of the broad people. And the year of Jubilee makes that happen. There were boundary limits to your prosperity. Land was assigned permanently, and everything resets on the 50th year. Can you mark out the limits to your family's ambition? Like when you sit back and think, when you mark out your ambition as a family, when you're with your mind, you're kind of looking forward, going, this is where I want to go. What is that limit? Is the limit a little more? I mean, that's a deadly limit. I just want a little more. What are the limits? Have you thought to yourself... Lord, what are the, what are the parameters that I, to which I'm supposed to advance to? When do I stop? Because for most of us, if there's a ladder in your business, the answer is always go up the ladder. And I'm here to simply imply that that is not a morally neutral idea. 
that the kingdom of earth is at work in those things. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying if, if you just adopt it without any kind of counsel from God, you're going to put yourself on a place that's never content, and you'll find yourself feeling like you're not who you're supposed to be because you're not on the ladder rung that you wanted to be on five years ago, and it, now that you're too old, so it's never going to happen. And you're sitting there, and this, instead of just understanding from the Lord, the Lord's saying, look, I gave you the, a certain size of land. This is what you were supposed to work. You should have found satisfaction in that in the first place. Is 70000 a year enough? Is being the assistant to the regional manager enough? If it's not enough, why is it not enough? Maybe you have a good reason. I just want to push you. Why is that not enough? What is enough? You will never rest if you can't answer that question. If it's just a little more, then rest has no way of weaving in because you just, there's not satisfaction. When can you stop? I want to return the image to the garden. In the garden, right, Adam and Eve, they didn't ever have to worry about survival, and they didn't ever have to worry about their boundaries. They didn't have to worry about their land. They weren't competing against Cain to build a bigger city. It was, it was, there's enough to eat. We work to shape our environment. And they were able to enjoy the land that God has given them. Now, I know we're not there. I know we're not in this land. And I know that if... if that we do, that toil, we are cursed, and we are cursed to toil and to labor hard over the land. So I know that it's difficult to find rest there. And I also know that because of sin in this world, that there's this, this doggy dog environment that desires that we, we have a position of advantage over our fellow neighbors, and that, that, is, that drives us towards advancement. And we want objects because we place faith and hope for happiness in objects. And all of that's there. But we as Christian people... We as the nation of God ought to be able to echo back to this world some kind of garden satisfaction. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't the gospel working itself through us, be a, shouldn't we be able to be a light to the Gentiles and to all those around the world to say, we don't have that, but we don't need that. We're satisfied with the territory around us. Or to say, we don't have much, but God provides. This is what he gave me, and he gave it to me, so he knows. I bring it before him and say, this is what you gave me. And then I celebrate. We as Christians, we're bound by that. We are bound to help the world rest. By modeling that, saying, whatever we give, we celebrate before the Lord. And and at some point, we know who God made us to be. And we don't feel a constant need to extend beyond that. That's where Christian rest comes. That's where the rest of Christ comes. That Christ, even when Christ comes to earth, he says, he quotes Isaiah 61, I have been sent to announce freedom for the captives and declare the year of the Lord's favor. He's announcing jubilee, is what Jesus is doing. He's announcing the year of jubilee. He's saying, I've come to set freedom. I've come to reset everything and to make things as they should have been. We ought to have a jubilee spirit, when we celebrate what Christ has done for us, we ought to be able to say, it's not what I wanted, but it's what he gave me. And I'm not what you think I should be, but I am who God made me to be. 
And I find great satisfaction there. And because of that, I find rest in God.